You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Well, welcome to the last week of It's Complicated. Over the last number of weeks, uh, it actually ends this evening, 5.30 p.m. in the loft. If you're married, this is how's this for a, t- a title. How does the Bible help us have better sex in marriage? Come and find out. If you're married, no matter your age and stage, whatever you're going through in life, how do you fill the emotional cup and the physical cup really well so that couples come closer together? We're going to uh, bring your Bible if you're coming tonight because we're going to explore what Scripture says, and it has a lot to say about it. But we started out our series by talking about singleness in this world and how complicated and how amazing it can be. We talked about sexuality. We talked about uh, marriage last week, staying married, hard to do in our culture. We talked about fixing this world. But today, I want to talk about a relationship that every one of you in this room has. We're all in this relationship. You think about it all the time, but you don't like talking about it. Have you ever had somebody had that type of conversation with you? It's called like, let's define the relationship conversation. Did you ever have that? Do you ever go, maybe you started a new job and you're not sure what the expectations are. You see what's on paper, but people seem to insinuate there are other things. And finally, you have to knock on someone's door and say, hey, let's define this relationship here. What's going on? What are the expectations of me? Or, or maybe uh, you've been in business and you have a partner and you're not sure if you're equal partners and you have to have that awkward conversation that kind of defines it. Am I an equity partner or am I an equal partner in this? See, sometimes there's always someone in the relationship who's okay with the ambiguity. They're okay not clearing things up. And there's usually somebody who has to initiate the let's define the relationship conversation. This conversation most often happens in the arena of love. You know, at some point, if you've ever been in love, somebody has to say, hey, what's going on here? Where's this headed? Are we dating? Are we getting engaged? Is something happening here? Have you ever had that conversation? I had that conversation years ago with my wife, Shelley. Years ago. And over time, there's two versions that have grown. There's there's my version of what happened in that let's define the conversation story. And then there's the wrong version, uh, Shelley's version of the story. That, that, uh, of what happened in the let's define the relationship conversation. See, my version, the right version, is this. I met Shelly when I was 13 years old. She was 12. I was 13. We met. There was no chemistry. But I didn't know it at the time, but she loved me. She did. She did. She loved me for years. And, you know, as I look back over the years, I realize I can't blame her. I really can't blame her for that. I really can't. And I went off, I left my hometown, I moved to a different province to do theological studies. Guess who followed me one year later? Shelley. Shelley did. And then, then I left and I graduated and I was pastoring in the west side of Toronto. Guess who came and did their internship at the church I was working at? Shelley. Shelley. People have it now. You catch a pattern here? And so, you know, she wore me down, folks. Just wore me down. And I remember the let's define the conversation. I I initiated the conversation and I I finally said, okay, okay, I love you. And, And that was the beginning of the relationship. 
Do you want to hear her version? You like, you like fiction, do you? Okay, well, let me give you the fiction part. Apparently, she didn't feel anything towards me from 12 on up. Nothing. Apparently, it was God who stirred her heart to go study theology, not me. Apparently. Apparently, the school assigned her to come to the church I was working. She didn't even know I was working there. Apparently. And I remember, again, when she joined the staff of that church, she knew nobody but me. And so I did what I had to do, befriend her. Not because I wanted to, but I had to. And our friendship began to grow. And I remember, I remember it like yesterday. And Shelly will remember this because she's in the room. We were downtown Toronto on a day off, and it was cold, and it was the fall. And we were on Young Street. And traffic was lower because of it was evening. But I remember we were going to cross the road. And it wasn't a crosswalk there, which you should never do. And so I grabbed her hand to run across the road. Not because I wanted to hold her hand, but because it's dangerous in Toronto. And I was looking out for her. Even back then, I was looking out for her. And then she mistakenly took that holding of the hand and the lingering that happened on the other side of the road because I didn't let go. But it was only because her hand was cold and she didn't have gloves on and it was late fall and I'm concerned, that's all, it was just concern. But affection began to grow on her side and mine a little. But... And it came to a point where we had to have that conversation and I did initiate it. And you know this part of the story because I've shared this before. I said to, I said to my soon-to-be wife, I said, Shelly, because it's time to, define, to find the relationship, I think I love you. And Shelly didn't even acknowledge it, not once. And I finally mustered the courage up to say, I just told you I, I thought I love you. And she said, yeah, I know I heard you. I heard you say, you think you love me. Tell me when you do. She has, this is a personality. You're getting a picture of who my wife is. It's kind of step up or step out, pal. That, that was the conversation. I am so thankful all these years later that we had that conversation. Because if someone hadn't defined the relationship, it may have lingered in ambiguity, and I would never have the friendship I have today. See, sometimes it's awkward to have the let's define the relationship conversation, but it's so critically important. So I want to talk about a relationship that you think about, but you don't like to talk about. I want to talk about your relationship with money. Because every one of you is in a relationship with money. Some of you love money. I mean, you love it. It has your heart. How do you know it has your heart? Because when you lose it, you lose it. You know, you love money. You love to keep it. You like to get it. You, you love it. Some of us, if we're honest, we're in more of a, a lustful relationship with money. We have a lot of desires, and money gets those desires. So we love bling, we love things, and we're driven to spend money. Our relationship with money is kind of lustful spending in money. Some of us have an insecurity, an insecure relationship with money. Some of us live with worry and fear around money. We're always afraid it's going to leave us someday. We're always afraid we might come home and money might leave. 
And we live in this insecurity when it comes to money. Some of us live in an unhealthy relationship with money. And by that, I mean you need it, you use it, but you ignore it. I mean, maybe that's your financial plan, right? Just, you don't know where it goes. You just know it seems to keep going. And you have no budget. There's no plan around it. There's no management around it. You just know there's a lot of coffees. There's a lot of eating out. And all of a sudden, it's gone. There's no plan. What, what, what do we call that? Well, that's, that's an unhealthy relationship with money. It's ignoring money. I want you to consider for a moment what the Bible says about money. Here's the question I'd like you to be thinking during the teaching. What is your relationship with money? So the Bible speaks about money 2,350 times. A lot, friends. Let me give you context. It talks 500, there's 508 verses in the Bible on prayer. And there's 2,350 verses in the Bible on money and possessions. How many know, now, does that mean money and possessions is more important than prayer? Well, certainly not. So why would God give us so much around money and possessions? Because God knew. God knew that we'd all be in relationship with money because we all need it. But God knew we would have a necessary but complicated relationship with money. In fact, theologians have studied the 2,350 verses, smarter people than me have, and they've noticed a pattern that would describe how our relationship should be with money. We shouldn't be in a love relationship with money. The Bible clearly says that because if you put that love towards money, money will always leave you hollow in the end. We shouldn't be in a lustful spending relationship with money. That's not how we were intended to manage it. We're not supposed to be in an insecure relationship with money. Jesus dedicated a lot of his teaching. I taught on it last year. A lot of his teaching around money to saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Not supposed to be in that type of relationship. We are not supposed to be in an unhealthy relationship with money where we ignore it. Instead, theologians, as they took all of these verses and they came up with a word that best describes how you and I should relate to money, it was this word, steward. Not a word we use very often, but if you study history, you're familiar with this word. Here's the definition of what a steward is. Someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. A steward is someone that is entrusted with somebody else's wealth and possessions and then they are trusted to manage it in the owner's best interest to get a return on what has been invested, what has been entrusted to them. So if you miss everything else I say today, the Bible's teaching on money possessions, it's, it's, it's true of our time, our talents, our abilities, everything, is that God owns everything, and you and I are the managers. God owns everything. We are the time managers. God gives us a limited time here, and we're to manage that time in the owner's best interest. God gives us talents and abilities, and we're to manage those talents and abilities in the owner's best interests. We're money managers. God gives us money and possessions, and we're to manage those money and possessions in the owner's best interests. I want to show you some scripture today, and the first one is King David says these, and there's so many to choose from. I had to narrow it down, but I'm going to share a few of them with you today. King David is declaring, and he wrote this to be set, uh, sung, really, in gatherings just like this. In Psalm 24, verse 1, can we say it aloud together? 
wow, I was going to say, okay, go, but you guys went. This is an all-encompassing verse. The earth, it's the Lord's. Well, now, unless you're looking for a technicality, plus everything in it. And unless you're looking for another technicality in the world and all, all who live in it. It all belongs to the Lord. This next verse is from a prophet in the Old Testament. And and when he was prophesying, he was in his 70s at the time. It's a very unique book, Haggai is, because Haggai is the only book that actually gives us the date in which he prophesied chapter 2, where this comes from. He prophesied this on October 17th, 520 B.C., He spoke these words. Here's the context. Children of Israel had been in exile in Babylon. There were hard days, difficult days. But now they're back in the promised land, and it's good days. And here's what happens to them. It doesn't happen to any of us, but it happened to them. In the hard times, they wanted God. They needed God. In the good times, they forgot God. And Haggai says this from the Lord. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. He was over 70 years old. Good message for those of us who might be older in this room. Your ministry doesn't end to those around you. And here he is declaring truth to a a generation of people who have forgotten. You move on, and I love this next verse. This next verse, the context is Deuteronomy. It's it's the law. And here, here it says this, but remember, because he knew we'd have a habit we'd be in the habit of forgetting. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Remember, don't forget that it's God who gives you the ability to produce wealth, lest you think it's you, lest you think it's you. This one in Chronicles is fantastic read. So this is King David passing the torch to King Solomon. And he's praying this prayer, and he's really, what he's doing is he's passing the torch to a younger generation to remember to honor God with what he gives them. He says this, wealth and honor come from you, God. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. It was like a call right there for that next generation. Just remember where it all comes from. Honor God with this. Honor God with this. Then this last one here, Paul in the New Testament. This is so familiar. He says this, do you not know? I love when he starts that because he knows you know. He knows you know. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Next verse. Okay. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your. So apparently, you don't even belong to you. You've been purchased with a price. It's not that everything you have doesn't belong to you, but you don't even belong to you. Turn to someone next to you and just say, I don't have as much as I thought I did when I came in here. Because it all belongs to God. Everything is his. We are stewards. We have the privilege of directing our time, our talents, our resources to the places where God intends them to be distributed. Let let me illustrate it this way. I have a friend in Halifax. His name's Kevin. If I want to get something to him fast, I'd likely purulate it. Put it in the envelope. You seal it. Purulator guy comes and picks it up. 
Now, what would happen if two weeks later, Kevin calls me and said, it never came? There's a problem. There's a breakdown there. But if we could track it, and we track it, and we track it to the pure later guy's house. And you go into his house, and you see a stack of pure later envelopes. We'd be like, dude, what? He said, I just like them. We'd have to have a defining the relationship conversation. Dude, you don't understand your job. You get paid to move things from here to there. You're just the middle guy. You're just the middle gal. This is not your property. This belongs to me. And you've been paid to move it from here to there. That's your role. And the Bible's teaching around this is constantly that. It's not yours. You're the pure later guy. You're the pure later gal. You're moving it from here to wherever God intends it to be. See, God deploys, God deploys people in the world in strategic places at strategic times, and we steward or direct our witness, our time, our talents, and money to his intended destinations. If we can go to the next slide, that'll be right there for you to see. We intend it to his intended destinations. We steward it. We get it from here to there. Friends, money is just a big struggle for all of us to understand this because often we think stewardship and we think of the offering bucket that just went by you. But that's not what God thinks of when he thinks stewardship. No, God's bucket is much bigger. See, when we think of stewardship, God's bucket is like this. See, when God talks about stewardship, it's not putting your money in an offering plate. No, no. It's putting your life in it. It's that when I said yes to Jesus, I made a decision to follow him. It was all in. Everything. My energies, my talents, my relationships, my finances, they all go into the bucket. They all go into the That's what baptism's all about. If, you, if, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, let me encourage you. Text the word baptism to our church's number. Go to a connector. We have a class this Wednesday night where you can make a decision to be baptized. And why it's so important is baptism is getting into a bucket, so to speak. And we're identifying, we're saying, listen, I used to live for myself. I used to think this was all about me. I used to consume for me. But now, no, 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 I live for Christ. Now, and here's the interesting thing. It's all part of what we call discipleship. Remember what the disciples were. There were 12 guys that followed Jesus. And a disciple literally means a student or a learner. And they were learning the Jesus way. And part of discipleship is coming under his lordship. That's a word we don't use often. But rulership. The process of becoming a follower of Jesus is more than a decision you make on a weekend to pray, God, forgive me for my sins. It is a process of surrendering control of everything we have and allowing Jesus to take the wheel because we trust his way over our way. It's difficult because it's acknowledging that it's God's house that I live in. It's God's car. They're God's kids, not mine. They're God's, that's God's person in my life and my spouse. This, it's God's body. It's God's finances. But if you're like me, I prefer to keep one leg out and one leg in. And a lot of Christians do this to their own detriment. 
That's why a lot of Christians live with such guilt and insecurity in their, in their spiritual relationship. And some people move away from church eventually because they're tired of feeling guilty. And I don't blame them. Because Christians should be the most guilt-free people walking on this planet. Not because they're perfect. God knows we're not perfect, right? <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> All the perfect people left a long time ago. It's just you and me. No, 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 no. There's no perfection in us except that we live a surrendered life to Jesus and his grace covers our sin. We should not be walking around feeling guilt. But here's what happens. A lot of people get in the habit of living in duplicity. So they have one area they're willing to surrender, usually the area that's easy to surrender. And they have another area that they refuse to surrender. So in the area of finances, this is often a different, you know, I always keep my wallet in my right pocket, just out of the bucket. Or your relationships, or your sexuality, or the way you handle uh, yourself behind closed doors, ethically in business, whatever it might be. Sometimes we like to keep our business outside the bucket. Why? Because you don't understand, Jonathan. You don't know what it's like in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. You don't understand how this operates. And, you know, when you say that to me, I I'm okay. I probably don't. I probably don't. I'm a pastor. What do I know about your world? But Jesus knows about your world. In fact, he might know more about your world than you do. In fact, I know he does. And the question is always this. This is the question of the message, really. It's less to do about money. It's more to do with, are you in the bucket? Are you in the bucket? Because us surrendering to God, he gives us this mechanism. Why I like talking about money, because, you know, one of the things that I don't like preaching on money is because I'm a preacher. And nobody wants to hear a preacher talk on money. Why? Because people hold their wallets a little bit tighter. Uh-oh. What's he going to ask? Listen, never a hard sell here, but I want to invite you into something. I want to invite you into something. I will tell you this, though. One of the beautiful things about the teaching on money in Scripture is it's so clear where you stand. Other areas, it's not. You know, relationally, it's very difficult to see whether your relationships are in the bucket. Only in hindsight can you see it. You can't tell at the time, are you elevating your children over Christ in your life? Are they more important than Jesus? Are you elevating a loved person, someone in your life, more, higher than Jesus? Are you elevating your career and your ambition and your success? Is that superseding your relationship with Christ? Now, often, we don't see that until hindsight. But the beautiful thing about money is you can tell right away. You know right away. You know right away. Because here, here's a truth that most people don't talk about. Money will always tell you what you worship. Always. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, he writes this. He says, there can be no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and your attitude towards it in God's hands. Why? It's about being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It's surrendering those things that we struggle to surrender. And the Bible gives us a mechanism to determine whether we're in the bucket or not. And it's called tithing. Tithing. It's giving 10% of our income to God. Now, right away, people are checking out like crazy. Good, good. But just come back in for a few minutes. Let me talk a little bit about this. It's acknowledging, every time we tithe, what we're acknowledging is we're the pure later guy. I'm just the middleman. I'm just managing getting things from here to there to be used in his kingdom for his purposes. 
when we live life outside the bucket, whatever area of our life it might be, we live this insecure relationship with God where we always wonder where we stand or we live in such guilt. And you know, people who live that duplicity life, they often love angry preachers. Go to think about that. There's something about them that responds when they feel they've been somehow beaten up a little bit, made to feel bad, made to be angry at sin or whatever it is because somehow it triggers a spiritual notch in them or a switch that makes them feel like they had a spiritual cathartic moment, but it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't free them from that. See, that's not the attitude God uses in teaching these things. It's not to make people feel bad. It's not to dump on people. It's always to free people, always to free people. And when we don't live life in the bucket, we open the door to pride. And pride is incessant. It is the source of every sin in this world. And pride blinds us to the fact that every one of us is totally dependent on God. Here's how the narrative goes. I worked hard for that. I earned that. It was my abilities, my ability to close the deal. It was my ingenuity. It was my careful saving, whatever it might be. And every time we say my, the grip gets a little bit tighter. And pride will lead you away from the truth that God gave you that air to breathe. God keeps that heart pumping. That God gave you the ingenuity and the abilities to be able to make, produce wealth, what it says in Deuteronomy. And when you live long enough outside the bucket, you know what you start living for? You start living for the approval of others. You start living for the, well, well, nice car. Well, well, Jonathan, nice house. Or, well, well, look how successful you are. And you know what you are then? You're trapped. Because we all know every time that is a nice car, the new car smell fades very quickly. And there's a new model out before you know it. It never satisfies. You get that a pinnacle of success and it's so hollow. Because when you're in the bucket, you get to live for something even better. Well, well done. Good and faithful servant. You got it from here to there. Well done. Not only does that fuel you in this life, it fuels you right into eternity. Well done, good and faithful servants. We are acknowledging that we are simply directing it from here to there. See, as steward, if we see ourselves as steward, if our relationship with money is stewardship, not ownership, all of a sudden it changes the question. We don't ask how much, we, how much do I have to give? No, 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 no. Because that would mean you think you own this. You ever try to give away somebody else's stuff? Listen, I'm going to pick on Shelly a little bit here all day, but Shelly's given away some of my stuff. I remember early in marriage, uh, a garbage bag splitting open, and it's all my stuff. And she's giving it to, I don't know, some, some social agency, and she's giving it away, but these are my treasures, my stuff. Well, see, it's not our stuff. So we don't ask, how much do I have to give? We ask, because we're not the owner, how much do I get to keep? That's what we ask. How much do I get to keep? We're not the owners. Stewardship is really the owner asks us to give 10% of his money to his mission. Now, 
This has been, you know, it's funny. Everyone struggles with something different. This has been one area that I'm thankful for how I was raised. My dad was a businessman. He ran businesses his whole life. That's all he did. He ran businesses. And I watched him always tithe. I've never not seen it modeled for me. So when Shelly and I got married, it wasn't even a conversation. We were both all in for 25 years. We have practiced that. 25 years this summer, we're going to be married. It's amazing. She's a great woman. 25 years, we've practiced putting God first financially. And you know, I can tell you, I won't tell you all the stories, because I would never want to motivate you to give to get. But I'll tell you this. In those 25 years, we've had some tough times. And financially, the Lord has never let us down. Never. One of the ways we practice it in our life is from Proverbs, where it says this, in Proverbs 9, 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. We recognized early on, if we don't give God the first fruits of our income, we have a tendency to eat into his fruit. It was right away, the first thing before we pay our bills or anything, we make sure we honor God with our resources first. Why? Because if we don't put him first, often he doesn't show up on the list. Giving is a baseline thing. Now, listen, if you're a church person here, you're going right away, you're thinking, man, I've heard this before. Uh, But that's Old Testament. That's in the law. Well, actually, tithing is mentioned before the law even. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham says this, or it's said of Abraham, God blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. In Genesis 28, Jacob did the same thing. Then the law came, and in Leviticus, it says this, uh, uh, and it's a total and all-comprehensive thing. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or from the soil or the fruits from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In the New Testament, you'll find in Matthew chapter 14, or in Luke chapter 18, Matthew chapter 23, Luke chapter 11. But beware of reading the New Testament when it comes to giving. I, I give you a big warning. Because tithing in the New Testament is just the basement level of giving. It's just the beginning point. In the Old Testament, that was all that was required. In the New Testament, that was just the very beginning point of generosity and living a generous life. So, we're almost done here. The beautiful thing about the Bible is it it chronicles the relationship between God and his people through the centuries. From the Old Testament right into the New Testament. And when it comes to money, because money is the interesting one that you can put your fingers around and understand. Relationships get a little fuzzy. Money's very clear. You can see this over and over with God's people. There's a principle that when people, hearts that drift away from God, stop tithing. Happens over and over in the Bible. Why is that? Because where your treasure is, yeah, your heart will be there. And over and over, the children of Israel would drift away and they would always stop it. And then, hearts that move towards God honor God with their finances. It's such a simple way to see, am I in the bucket or am I not in the bucket? So simple that it's painful at times. 
So let me illustrate this. I want to help you understand this. I have some friends that are going to help me with this. I want to imagine that God resources you and blesses you, okay? So let's say God gives you 10 watermelons. How many love watermelon? Oh, you guys are lame. Come on. <laughs> 10 watermelon. God says, I want the first one. And you know what you get to have? You have nine of them. You have nine. I'll take the first one. Now, what if God blesses you with cabbage? Anyone like cabbage? I love cabbage. It makes the house stink, though, but I love it. But God gives you cabbage, and he gets, says, and we take the first one, and we give that to God, and then he, he, he gives us nine of them. We get nine of them. How about, how about apples? A whole bag of apples. And God says, I'm going to give you 10 bags of apples, and he blesses you. How many like apples? Yeah, the apples are great. But the first bag belongs to the Lord, first fruits. The rest, though, you get to make your apple pies and whatever else you want to do with those apples. Anyone like cantaloupe? I've asked in every service, how many are honeydew people over cantaloupe? You like honeydew? Few? How many are definitely cantaloupe over honeydew? Okay. I'm definitely honeydew camp right there. But you get the first, the first cantaloupe goes to God, the rest the nine, you get to keep. You get to keep. Carrots, I mean, a little bit of butter, a little honey and dill in it. Oh, so good. You, you can eat them raw. They're a lot of work to chop up. You can buy them, mini carrots. Mm, great. But the first ones, they're not yours. Can't eat those. But you get nine bags of them. You get nine bags, but the first one not. How about coconut? Anyone like coconut? Yeah, now we're talking. Now we're talking. So the first coconut, though, that, that's, that's for God, but you get nine of them. You notice a little bit of a pattern here happening? You get 90% of it, and God gets 10 right here. How about broccoli? I'm tempted to just give it all to God, but, but you put enough cheese on it, and it's good, or you can stir fry it, but you get 10 heads of broccoli. One goes to God, and, and nine goes to you. Nine, you get nine of them you get to keep. Oranges. I, I love citrus fruits. Love them. I love oranges. I, when they're on sale, I go through a lot of them. But, but not this one, because this one is God's, but I get nine of them anyway. So I get to enjoy nine of them, but that one. That one belongs to God. Now, what about papaya? Anyone a fan of papaya? Oh, wow. Look, a lot of fans for this one. But this one you, you can't have, because this is God's. But there are nine papayas you get to enjoy. Now, are some of you starting to wonder where's this food going after this message? It's going to our food bank this week. It's all going to the food bank. Oh, we got another orange. Okay, I think this one goes back on this table. There's another orange because there's one there and the rest go here. But there should be a lemon coming or something else here. Oh, do we have a lemon? There we go. Thanks, man. Now, how many love lemons? So best thing, if you're a young parent here and you got young kids, uh, just cut a piece of lemon, make sure you have your phone out to videotape it, and, and put it on Instagram after. It's always fun. Uh, but they're great with sugar. They're great with cooking. But this one is God's. You get nine of them. Now, anyone a pineapple fan? Uh, it smells sweet. This is like ready to bite into, uh, or at least cut into. But this one is God's. The first fruit goes to him. But look, we can't even put it on the table anymore. Your table is overflowing. 
Your, your table, we don't even have room now to put it, but we've got plenty of room at God's table. Not, uh, enough room for some grapes. Uh, are you green grapes or red grapes fan? How many red grape fans? How many green grape fans? Okay, I'm going to give a split on that, split decision on that. But you, again, you have nine, nine bunches of grapes there, and now we're over the table and under the table filled with blessing, and we've got plenty of room still at this table. Oh, now here's the last fruit. Here's the last fruit. Thank you. Bananas. You know what I like about bananas? It's a snack on the go that comes with its own saran wrap. Don't you love that? It's potassium. You can bake with it. You can eat it. But this bunch, this belongs to God, the first fruits, and the rest you get to enjoy. Look at your table just for a minute. Take a look at God's table. How come that's not enough? Well, we're human. I think sometimes in life, if we're honest, we've had moments where there hasn't been as much on this table, right? Just we've gone through tough times. So I think sometimes in plenty, though, if we see the children of God, we realize even with plenty, they often forgot God even more than when they had little. Apparently, when the habit is built in difficult times, it's likely to remain in good times. But I think, too, sometimes, if I'm honest with you, sometimes this table has hard, I've been hard-pressed to make it enough because my appetites have exceeded my budget. Have you ever been there? where you want things outside your means. And in order to do it, you have to come over here. Because the nine over there wasn't enough. And I'm a little hungry at this point in the message. (laughs) That's a good banana. I think sometimes we don't allow for enough margin. And we wrongly think it's all ours. And friends, this is about what God wants for you. I, w- I want to share one last text, and, uh, and this is the one I've hesitated sharing because I've heard it taught so poorly at times that it just felt guilty. I don't want anyone feeling guilty. Because it's interesting in the Bible, it says God loves a cheerful giver, and there's a reason why. Because... It, When you live in the bucket, you start to realize it's fun to give. It is so liberating to live for well done as opposed to well, well. It's so liberating liberating not to be in a controlling relationship with money or an approval relationship with money or an insecure relationship with money, but to be freed from that. Here's the verse. It's again one of the prophets, the prophet Malachi. And it's amazing. It's God talking to his people. God talking to his people. It says this. Ever since the time of your ancestors, meaning we've always been this way. We've always been this way. You've turned away from my decrees. Now, that we sing a hymn around here sometimes that we're prone to wander. And that's human nature. We turned away from your decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. Return to me, God says. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Now that word rob is, rob is very rare. It's rarely used. 
What it actually means is to oppress and pillage. Will a mere mortal oppress God and pillage him? Yet you rob me, God says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And the interesting thing about this is the storehouse, every temple had a treasury at that day and age because it was meant to fund and fuel worship and salvation. Worship and salvation. But see, for many of us, I think God knew this about us, for some of us, our treasury is our wardrobe. For some of us, our treasury could be our house. We put our treasures in different places. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And this is the only time you'll ever hear God say this in scripture. Test me. In this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. An interesting passage of scripture. In the beginning, God says, come back to me. Why? Because hearts that are moving away from God stop tithing. Hearts that move towards God tithe. And he's saying to them, come back to me. Come back to me. God uses some strong imagery here. He says, you're robbing me. You're, You're taking what belongs to me instead of using what I've given you. Here's the thing, friends, and listen to this. If you've heard nothing else, I don't want anyone leaving here feeling guilty. That's not the the end game here. I want you to hear this. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you financially. He wants to bless you relationally. He wants to bless you physically. He wants to bless you spiritually. God wants to bless you. And I'm not talking in some weird theological way that someone would teach that you'll never have anything bad happen to you or you'll never have setbacks in your life or it's always upward and forward or that God wants to make you rich. Friends, uh, there is such errant theology around this that I struggle talking about some of that. But I will say this, the intention and heart towards God the Father who is so much better than any earthly father He wants to bless you, but he won't, and he can't bless whatever's not in the bucket. Friends, in the toughest times, when Shelley and I have faced very difficult financial decisions, some of you have been there, some of you will be there. Do you know how confident I was to go to Jesus and say, God, provide my needs? Because I kept it on his table. Do you know how hard it is to go to God and ask him to help you when you're living like this? It's really hard. When you're living relationally like this, when you're living, I I know this is heavy, friends. I know this is heavy because it's not even about money. This is about being a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. This is a process of getting into the bucket. But I will say this. Every time we have faced financial difficulty, we've been able to confidently go to God and say, God, provide. You're our provider. Meet our needs according to your riches and glory because we have put you first. Because here's the newsflash. Friends, if you don't hear anything else, I keep saying that, but this is one of those messages. 
God doesn't need your watermelon. God doesn't need your mango. God doesn't need your broccoli. God doesn't need your grapes. We think it's something God wants from us when it's something God wants for us. Because every time we put something in the bucket, we position ourselves to be blessed by God. It's an act of surrender. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you, your children, in this moment. And, God, I give you thanks right now for the 2,350-plus verses on money and possessions. Man, you love us. You really do. You knew that these things would be hard for us to control, and you knew that money and possessions would be controlling us. So you gave us great teaching, great ways, God, to make sure it doesn't control us but we remain under your control. So God, thank you for, for the teaching that helps us to be free. And God, I pray right now for my friends in this room. For those of us in a love relationship with money, for those of us in an insecure relationship with money, a, a, a lustful spending relationship with money, or even an unhealthy ignoring of money, Lord, I pray by your spirit, you'd reposition us to get in the bucket, God. Your word teaches us even how to manage our resources, God. God, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to grow in this important area so that we can understand surrendering and following you well. And God, for any of us in this room, whatever area, it might not be money today, but there's some other area in our life that we're tempted to have one foot in, one foot out. By your spirit, just whisper to us that you can, we can trust you, God. We can trust it that when you ask something of us, you're really asking something for us, God. You never do it for your benefit. You don't need our love and devotion. You don't need us to even be in the bucket. You invite us in, God, because we need to be there. And we need your love. And we need, God, obedience because it makes us healthy. And healthy things grow. So God, make us a healthy people. Help us to put you first in all things. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.